in March of 19, February or March of 1996, I received a telephone call from a Professor Gibran back at uh, Shaw University in North Carolina. And a voice on the other end of the line said, Lieutenant Baker? Yes. So what do you know about the Medal of Honor? said nothing and I started to hang up because I thought it was some nut and he said uh, don't hang up and he said uh, I'm, this is Professor Gibran from uh, University, Shaw University in North Carolina and the Army has given us a $350,000 grant to investigate why no black serviceman received the Medal of Honor in World War II. An excerpt from an interview with today's very special guest Vernon Baker one of the seven black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II. We'll hear Vernon's story in his own words right after this break. I'm Robert Child and this is Point of the Spear. March 25th is National Medal of Honor Day and my new book, Immortal Valor, about the black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle up until their ultimate triumph. I hope you check out Immortal Valor, which is on sale now as we celebrate all Medal of Honor recipients on March 25th. Welcome back. Today, March 25th, is National Medal of Honor Day in the United States. And on this special episode of the podcast, an interview with recipient Vernon Baker, recorded in 2001. It is part of the Vernon Baker Collection Veterans History Project in the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Vernon served as a lieutenant in the all-black 370th Infantry Regiment, which became the point of the spear in the 92nd Division on the Gothic Line in Italy. In fact, Baker's platoon was the unit that finally broke through Hitler's last line in the sand in northern Italy. Medal of Honor recipient, Vernon Baker. I was born and raised in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, when I was four years old, my mother and father were <coughs> killed in an automobile accident. In those days, they, uh, the roads weren't very good, and there were quite a few automobile casualties because of the accidents on the, on the unimproved roads that they had. I was raised by my grandparents. My grandmother's name was Dora V. Baker. And my grandfather's his name was Joseph Samuel Baker. <clears throat> Graduated from Clarinda High School in 1939. Came back to Cheyenne the summer of, of, of 1939. Went back to work on the railroad as a red cap and a porter. And on, in December of 1939, Grandfather, who had already retired from the railroad, passed away. We buried him on Christmas Day of 1939. And I worked on a railroad until 1941. The summer of 1941, when I got tired of being a porter on the railroad and a servant, I quit my job and joined the Army in June of 1941. I went uh, to basic training June of 1941 to Camp Walters, Texas, took my basic training. 
Uh, graduated from basic training and was sent to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, where I became a company clerk in Company D, 325th Infantry Regiment. I said, I don't remember my drill instructor's name in basic training, but he was a son of a bitch. And uh, I, I swore that when I became a sergeant in the Army that I wouldn't be an SOB. I finished basic training and was transferred from Camp Walters, Texas to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and became the company clerk of Company D, 25th Infantry Regiment, which was an all-black unit, and at that time, the Army was segregated. I got myself in trouble after I had joined the Army because I had a little education. Uh, if you read my book, you'll see that I was, I had my behind beat, whipped up by some of my own people. About three days after the supply sergeant left, I was called into the company commander's office, Captain Green, and said he had uh, a pair of sergeant stripes laying on his desk. And he said, pick those stripes up and put them on. Sergeant Baker, you're my new supply sergeant. I became a supply sergeant, and I think for the reason that I did all the paperwork from the supply room, and I knew the paperwork from top to bottom. Uh, in October of 1942, I received orders to go to Fort Benning, Georgia to attend OCS. I went to Fort Benning, Georgia and graduated from OCS on the 11th of January, 1943, when I became a second lieutenant. About a week before we graduated, uh, we were uh, setting up in, in the stands and our TAC officer, who was in charge of our platoon, uh, asked, uh, do you, uh, any of you have any questions about uh, why you're here in OCS? And one of the candidates stood up and said, yes, sir, uh, Lieutenant, we'd like to know uh, why are they making so many second lieutenants? At that time, the war was in full swing. And <laughs> the TAC officer gave that grin and said, candidate, because second lieutenants are expendable. I reported to Fort Huachuca, Arizona again and was assigned to Company C of the 370th Infantry Regiment of the 92nd Division. We trained at Fort Huachuca, Arizona until June of 1944 when we were packed up and sent to Italy. as a combat team. We didn't go over as a whole division. The 370th went over as a combat team. When we went overseas, I still had a tough time because most of the men I had, I was a platoon leader, and the men that were in my platoon were older than I. Most of them were from the South. And 
it took a while. In fact, it took us maybe about two weeks or a week and a half or two weeks while we were going overseas to get together. And on the boat, on on the boat going overseas, uh, <laughs> me as a young man, I was only 22 years old then, 23, and I became the father to my platoon. Uh, the men we we got to know each other. Uh, most of them couldn't read or write, and I read their letters and I wrote letters home for them. And uh, we became quite close. Uh, it seemed that I was mother, <clears throat> father, uncle, cousin to those men. So when we when we land <clears throat> when we landed in Italy and we got ourselves together, it uh, our staging area was at Civita Vecchia on the west coast of the peninsula. And we started our, our trip up the uh, Italian Peninsula from Naples to Civita Vecchia, Via Reggio. And there's where it became a little tough. They had, every, they had everything covered. Uh, we were coming up, and they were already up. In fact, they were up farther. And they had every knob... Every uh, uh, forested area or, or, or terraced area covered and, and in crossfire. Our objective was to uh, clear the German forces from the, the, the Italian peninsula, the western section of the peninsula. We were on the Mediterranean side of, of the country, and uh, our mission was to clear the uh, mountainous, the, 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 from, from the midsection of, of the peninsula, of the Italian peninsula, to the shore. And we were in the northern Apennines. And, uh, well, I lost 19 men. The unit, and, and, and I think and most of the units in, 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 my, in my company came back with five, six people. And there were American dead spewed all across that those, those three hills, X, Y, and Z. In fact, for several months before that, we lost a lot of men, not only black soldiers, white soldiers, Japanese soldiers, all Americans. They lost quite a, quite a few people. You're listening to an interview with Vernon Baker. Coming in our next episode, Angus Wallace of the World War II podcast will be here. And in two weeks, on April 6th, join us for a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Alex Kershaw about his new book, Against All Odds. Bob Maxwell, who I interviewed, said that that, we that medal had weighed heavy. You're expected to be a superhero for the rest of your life. You, you can't get a speeding ticket. You can't get drunk in public. You can't get drunk in a bar and behave badly. You, can't, you know, if you get divorced, everyone knows about it. I don't know. I mean, you're expected to behave at a level that these guys in the war didn't behave like that. You know, before sure. the war, they didn't behave like that. They, 
they didn't want the Medal of Honor. They weren't looking for the Medal of Honor. They they were they were just blessed that they lived and survived and came home, you know? That's next time. Now let's return to Vernon Baker. Well, on the same day after that particular engage, engagement, or during that engagement, I was abandoned by my, by my, by my company commander who told me that he was going back for reinforcements after while we were in the midst of a hellfire engagement up there on the hill. But that didn't bother me then. It made me angry and it made me all the more determined to accomplish our mission because at that time the army was segregated and we were, it was thought that we weren't able to to fight, that we were cowards because we were black. And then when a company commander who abandoned us went back and told our battalion commander not to worry about us because we were washed out or wiped away. And I didn't find all this out until after everything was over with. And what made me really angry was the fact that nobody gave us any word of encouragement or any words of thanks. When I went back to regimental headquarters to turn in the dog tags with the 19 men that I left up on that hill there, I was chewed out by the regimental commander, Colonel Sherman himself, because I wasn't wearing a steel helmet. I would, I would have liked to have told Colonel Sherman where to go that day, but too many people around. They asked me to lead the 473rd Infantry Regiment back up on the hill, on the same place we came out of. I did. And when we got up on the top, there not a shot was fired because we had broken, we'd broken the lines. And the Germans had picked up and moved out and took everything, took, took their dead with them and the boots and socks from my dead men. And I found 13 of the bodies and I couldn't find the other six that were left up there. They were damn good. They were good. In fact, they knew what they were doing. They had been in that area for Oh, they had been in the country for years and they knew every inch and they knew exactly what they were doing. They had their fortifications, they had their positions. All we were doing, we were opening the door and stumbling in and didn't know what we were doing until, and if we survived then we found out what was happening and we took care of things. Other than that, we lost a lot. Well, directly after the, uh, after the war was over, the 92nd Division was deactivated, and I did not want to come home for obvious reasons. 
So I, when my unit was deactivated, I uh, transferred and became a quartermaster soldier and stayed in Italy. And I stayed there until 1947. At that time, the war the war had been over, and there were no there there, there wasn't anybody there to meet us at the boat. Uh, uh, there were no accolades and none, none of this. We, we we got off the boat, got on trucks, went to Camp Hillman, New Jersey, and there's where we were either separated or reassigned. That was it. Uh, this, there, there wasn't any fanfare when I came home. In March of 19, February or March of 1996, I received a telephone call from a Professor Gibran back at um, Shaw University in North Carolina. And uh, when this one, I, I answered, I happened to answer the telephone. I usually don't answer the telephone, but this morning, I don't know what happened. I happened to pick the telephone up and answer it. And a voice on the other end of the line said, uh, Lieutenant Baker? I said, yes. I said, what do you know about the Medal of Honor? And I said, nothing, and I started to hang up because I thought it was some nut. And he said, uh, don't hang up. I said, uh, I'm, this is Professor Gibran from uh, the Univers Shaw University in North Carolina, and the Army has given us a $350,000 grant to investigate why no black serviceman received a Medal of Honor in World War II. And we would like to come out and interview you and talk to you about the war or about your service back in 1945, about 5 April 1945. So in September of 95, or was it 96, September of 96, I received a call, and she said that uh, they are thinking about awarding you the Medal of Honor. Keep yourself together. Keep yourself available because there are people, there are people that are coming to see you. And that's when it started. Uh, reporters started to coming. I don't know how they found out where I live because it's pretty hard to find out where we live unless you really know. And uh, I had to, uh, there were people that come out, reporters, newspaper reporters, radio, TV, came out and turned my house into a studio. And then one day, a captain showed up. His name was Jackson. And he showed up with his driver, Specialist Lures. And uh, he said, I'm here to escort you back to Washington. D.C. to receive the Medal of Honor. He was my escort. 
It was in the East Room. All I know is it was, it was full of people. Uh, there was uh, General Powell, Colin Powell, the Army Chief of Staff, and any number of people. In fact, the, the room was it, it, it was it was loaded. And all I can remember is that I was escorted up to the podium, the podium, by a captain, and then the other six that uh, were to receive the Medal of Honor for the men that had passed on. Well, came behind and we all came up and sat on the podium and that was it. Well, I was a little angry at first because I felt that if I'd done something, uh, my man had done something that uh, needed or, or, or was to be rewarded for what, what, we, what we did, it should have been done then or it should have been done soon afterwards uh, instead of waiting 52 years. Some of the some 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 of the uh, uh, things that I read that was that the army uh, looked back and uh, wondered why if no black had received the Medal of Honor uh, during the war or after the war or right after the war whenever 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 it was supposed to be received. An old soldier, I ain't supposed to be crying. Well, here's the only thing for one reason. There was 19 men that I left over in Italy there that couldn't be here with me today. And without them, that poor those men, I probably wouldn't be here myself. And everybody calls me a hero, but those are the heroes. Medal of Honor recipient, Vernon Becker one of the seven recipients chronicled in my new book, Immortal Valor. Thanks again for joining us on National Medal of Honor Day, a day in which we honor and remember all Medal of Honor recipients for their service and sacrifice. Coming in our next episode, Angus Wallace of the World War II podcast will be here. And in two weeks on April 6th, join us for a conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Alex Kershaw about his new book, against all odds. Bob Maxwell, who I interviewed, said that that, we that medal had weighed heavy. You're expected to be a superhero for the rest of your life. You, you can't get a speeding ticket. You can't get drunk in public. You can't get drunk in a bar and behave badly. You, can't, you know, if you get divorced, everyone knows about it. I don't know. I mean, you're expected to behave at a level that these guys in the war didn't behave like that. You know, before sure. the war, they didn't behave like that. They, they didn't want the Medal of Honor. They weren't looking for the Medal of Honor. They, they, were, they were just blessed that they lived and survived and came home, you know? That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.